going on. I mean, I didn't sit home and watch it because people have this like weird vision of me like sitting in a Barco lounger with the case of paper towels on one side, a 55-gallon drum, a baby oil on the other, and uh, a big street screen TV with a splash guard and a bug scraper. No, it's not me. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is is not Peter Gajek and not Cecil Trachtenberg because they are both off this week. Well, Cecil's at a family thing and Peter is sick, so I got a different Peter. I got Peter Shirilla to set in, and we're going to talk about the old days of VHS. How you doing, Pete? Oh, great. I'm glad you're scraping the bottom of the, bottom of the barrel digging me up tonight. <laughs> hey, you agreed to it. Am I supposed to say no? I'm uh, a whore, too. Well, you're getting 42nd Street, Pete, without the, uh, the expletives. But before that, guys, you need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also, if you're going to be going to some of the shadier parts of the internet, you kind of need a VPN, a virtual private network, and that's where NordVPN comes in. You go to 1201beyond.com backslash DROME VPN, and that will take you to Nord's site with our code, and you will be able to get Nord's protection for only $3.49 a month. That's 75% off of a three-year plan. They'll encode your data. They'll protect your data. If you're in England or something like that, hey, you want to watch The Mandalorian, but Disney Plus hasn't launched there yet? Use Nord. And all of a sudden, hey, look, you can tell them you're in Ohio and you're watching it with Pete. 1201beyond.com backslash Drome V. P-N. All of the whoring out of the way. Pete, you just recently did a vi- put a video up on your Grindhouse channel about your old days of like VHS, not bootlegging, but VHS selling and that. And I wanted to kind of talk about that era, the back when you were a VHS dealer. Let's leave porn out for right now. We'll come back to porn. Yeah. How did you get into doing this? Because I know you were there right at the beginning when like Charles Band was putting out the Mita stuff, when there was just that shockingly small amount of available media on legitimate VHS. You know, the whole thing was, I, I'm trying to think of, I can't, you know, it was early 80s, I bought my first VCR, it was a Magnavox, it weighed about 80 pounds, had a wired remote, uh, controls were like these big piano keys you depressed, and I wanted to own movies. So the first thing I did was I drove, I, I was living close to New York, I was married then, I was you know, living close to New York, so we just booked into New York because the video shack on Broadway was open till 2 o'clock in the morning. So first two movies I bought, funny you bring up the meter thing, because it was Night of the Living Dead and Assault on Precinct 13 for fifty nine ninety five each. Magnetic Video was the first video company, but they just had years old 20th century Fox titles. Yeah. But then Charles 
Charles Band came in with Mita. This is before Full Moon Empire doesn't even exist yet. I think he was doing Charles Band productions at this point with like Crash and that, but maybe not even then. It, it no, they, funny they came. They came later on. Basically, he was picking up. You know, he had he had Halloween. He had Night of the Living Dead. He had Assault on Precinct Thirteen. He had some cartoons. Um, he had um, the Groove Christ- Tube. Yeah, Christopher Tunnel Vision. End of, end of the world. I don't, did he have Tunnel Vision? I'm looking at, I've got a 1978 Mita tape from, of Cocaine Cowboy. And on the back of it, it it's funny because people, I'm sure you remember this, Pete. They didn't even have pictures from the movie like we'd get used to in the 80s. Yeah. At this, at this point, you, you got nothing except maybe the poster on the cover. Listed for more great Mita product. You had feature films, Halloween, The Groove Tube, Slithis, Night of the Living Dead, Tunnel Vision, Laser Blast, Flesh Gordon, The Porno, Alice in Wonderland, The Porno, Assault on Precinct 13, Jungle Book, 20 Years of Rock and Roll, Rod Stewart and Faces in Concert, Yes Songs from the band Yes, Rockstar's 69 Studio Sessions, a tribute to Billie Holiday, Cheech and Chong Perform Live, Jimi Hendrix in Concert, Volunteer Jam, and then he had cartoons like Shame of the Jungle, classic cartoons of the 30s, some old, those old Superman Fleischer shorts. Think about it. You, you can talk about this more than anybody. What was it like when that was about all you could get on videotape at the time? Well, like you said, you had, um, oh, allied artists had their own line too. Where you, I know they had, um, you got Attack of the Crab Monsters, Frankenstein 1970, uh, there was a few things like that. But yeah, that, that that was the whole thing because you know going back to the whole thing, I really wanted to open a video store, and I got involved with a partner. But unfortunately, my partner was a porn addict, and I didn't know it. So I had a contact in with uh, Caballero, and we were in the talking stages. Well, he goes ahead and orders. He ordered. Let me see. It was five hundred dollars worth of stuff. A thirty. Uh, a 60 minute movie was 30 bucks and a feature like insatiable or something like that was 60 bucks. So now out of the gate, I'm out like 500 bucks or we're, we're out 500 bucks, I should say. And now you're trying to f- get into a town, open a video store. And the first thing happens when you go before the planning board or the building inspector or whatever is, are you going to have an adult section? And if you have to tell them. You know, then it was like thumbs down. So now I'm thinking, let me get away from this guy because I got another idea how to get into this. I basically copied, you know, three X-Raiders on a tape, sold them for 20 bucks, got our money back, and then we said adios. But then I started, like, buying out stores. I don't mean, like, going in when they were starting to go out. I mean, I didn't care about their mainstream stuff because I wanted what we all know and love, you know, the cult stuff, the horror stuff. And at that time, that wasn't a huge seller back then. For whatever reason, I don't know why, because most of these the mom and pop stores that failed were in like really weird areas where they were like oity toity type things, you know. Are we talking like like the wizard video big box stuff at this point, or not quite yet? Not quite yet, but you know we're getting there. And even that, you know, that was another Charles Band deal. Okay, Charles Band, his reputation is deserved. He he's made some very shady deals, done some very shady things. I know people that used to work for him who said your paycheck would only clear half of the half of the time in the nineties. The guy also was able to see the future. He was able to see this is a new market. Yeah, because he even says his lawyer didn't even know what language to use making contracts for this stuff because it had never. 
never been done before. So as much as you might have negative things to say about Charles Band, the guy saw an untapped market yeah. and said, I got to get in on that. And that's both with Mita, then later Media, which wasn't technically him. That was after he sold to his partners. And then with Wizard, and then later with Full Moon. Yeah. He saw there's a market to make movies direct to video. Yeah, I would go in and give the, these store owners like my phone number and say, look, when you get down to the point where you just want to bail, give me a call. So I go in, eyeball the stuff, and usually it was a great, you know, selection of cult and horror stuff, but then you had the documentaries and the other crap, but you just took it anyway. That's how I started my collection, and then I started a business doing that, because I would just go to flea markets, and you know, no, hardly anybody was selling used movies back then. You know, I start, I basically was one of the first guys. And then, you know, as as things progressed, I'd make other connections with them. There was that chain primetime video that put the stuff in supermarkets, get his his stuff after, after it ran its course, and, and other fine, you know, find other stores that decide to go to flea markets and bail out and find it ain't that easy, then I'd walk over and make them an offer and wipe them out, so, yeah, and then I found liquidators, so that was like full circle with that. I had an indoor, I had a video store at one point. Did you have people that were specifically kind of like, hey, I really want to see this Assault on Precinct 13 movie, or was it was it just with the relatively limited selection that they had at the time? Was it people that just wanted, I just want to watch a movie, give me this Halloween thing? Or did you have people that were going, I want to see this Halloween thing, let's find it? The selections, as we both know, were very limited at the time. Yeah, I mean, no. you, you were not, not going to find a studio film on video in this era. No, my customers wanted horror movies. They, that that was the whole thing. They didn't care. And of course, then, you know, then I don't know if you want to segue into this now, but a bunch of guys that made their bones back in the day of the old Film Facts magazine were guys that were bootlegging black and white 50s horror movies. Well, and not just that. I, I'm sorry to keep coming back to Charles Band, yeah. but like when when he made Wizard, that whole thing was let's get all these weird Italian films that didn't even play drive-ins in America. That Wizard stuff was like nothing Americans had ever seen before. A huge bidding war with uh, over the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he ha he had some other stuff, but you know some of the stuff. Like that, you know, Oasis of the Living Dead, uh, I, I don't know what he titled that as, and then that, you know, just a bunch of, the, it was a case of, you know, like, like going back to the old Grindhouse days where the poster's better than the movie. Right, but I'm just saying, this is stuff that Americans had not seen before, and I think that was pretty cool. I remember, you know, in my time, going and trying to find some movie you've never heard of. Yeah, it might suck, but I'm seeing something I'd never heard of before. Some of this stuff, believe it or not, it might have, you know, flipped one day, you know, in, in the area that I was in, because, you know, they, they had the whole, uh, if you ran a movie for a certain couple days and it, and it flopped, you could do a tax write-off, so they purposely get these things and, you know, run them, you know, and whatever, and then they'd flop, and, you know, at least by Thursday to get something else in there that was going to work. What do you remember being, I mean, obviously we had, had said like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Sultan Precinct 13, Slithis, stuff like that. You, you brought up the black and white 50s movies. Now, n not bootleg specifically, but those seem to be just thrown on video everywhere where the old like AIP stuff and the Roger Corman stuff, those, those black and white 50s movies seem to be a huge draw. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't Corman stuff. What they had, what they had was, I know what you're talking about too, because this was the good time stuff. All, all the AIP stuff was copywritten except for a couple of them. Like Little Shop of Horrors was fair game. Creature from the Haunted Sea was fair game. Then you had, you know, the monogram Lugosi stuff, like the corpse vanishes in the ape man and things like that. That was for, you know, that was that, that whole niche thing with good times where, okay, you want to take home a movie for 15 bucks? I think that's what the going rate was when they first came out. You know, we got these. 
you know, they were they were getting stuff that the copyrights were definitely dead in the water, and then they kept on picking up stuff that the copyrights expired on. Matter, I think they're still around. You know, they they do DVDs now, but they were like the first, you know, retail one. You know? Yeah, the first time you'd see that stuff in the grocery store. I, I remember I was shocked in late 80s when I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre on VHS at the grocery aisle. Oh, was Star Maker, the Star Maker's version? I don't think it was Star Maker. I actually think it was Good Times because I remember the, the, the weird Good Times. They had that sort of marquee logo like outside of a, like yeah, a they, bijou think, kind of thing. I don't think Good Times picked that up. I'm trying to think who did. See, there was a whole, there was a whole weird, weird thing about that. They had, um, they slowed the speed on it. It was like on a, I think like a 60 minute blank or something like that. Yeah, a lot of those were on SLP speed. Yeah. But the other thing that you could always tell when it was a fly-by-night kind of cheapo operation, when they couldn't, for whatever reason, whether it was legal or just laziness, they couldn't reproduce the poster. So the cover art was just, it was just some random still from the movie. I, I, I got to tell you the story about the Texas Chainsaw thing. I used to go to those trade shows in New York, like, you know, because uh, I had a store. And they had this whole load of the, you know, the slow speed Texas Chainsaw Massacre VHS tapes, you know, it, but you had to buy the whole deal. And it was like, oh, 30,000 of these things or something. There's no way I was going to do that. And they had a bunch of other stuff mixed in. So down the road, when I'm working at Liquidators, he got these cheap porn tapes in, in big boxes with foil labels on them. And somebody brought it back in. He goes, there's a horror movie on this thing. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm serious, dude. Put it in. There's a horror movie on it. So I'm like, I go to put it in, but then I look at the label and I peel it up and they had like the silk screen on, on the casing, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm like, these dummies bought these things and they're recording over them and they missed one. Well, that sort of thing happened more, more than once with, didn't you work for some guys who tried to tape no, porn? That was, that, or, that, no, that was, that was, uh, when I started getting into this and when it became, you know, readily apparent find sources for this stuff. First place I found was a place called Video Warehouse in Neptune, New Jersey. You know, he had like the 30 minute tape was like seven bucks, 60 minute was 10, right? A full feature was 15. So I add a nickel appropriately at each one when I sold them, but he had all this other stuff, but he got a hold of, um, he was one of these guys that tried to drop the speeds on these things. So you got to figure the 75 minute and you dropping down to the SLP mode. So he's putting these on like whatever, 30 minute blanks. And he, he sends me a case to try out. And I put two in the machine and I'm like, dude, there's no way these things are horrible. They're, they're grainy. They're everything. I probably wasn't the only one who sent the stuff back. So what he did was he had these public domain cartoons, his help, which was a wonderful mixture of a uh, true professionals, drunks and drug addicts. He told them to copy the cartoons over the thing, you know, these, these porn tapes at the full speed and let them run out. Because the cartoons are only 20 minutes long. Well, of course, you know, these lazy bastards just popped it out after 20 minutes, rewound it, and threw them in the packages. And this stuff wound up in Toys R Us. That was the big thing back in the 80s about this, oh, there's X-rated videos in Toys R Us. That was the stuff. I, I wonder how many of those tapes are still around because you know when the, there's a big VHS collector market. I would love I would love oh, yeah. to find some VHS collectors that have legit tapes like that now. Who knows? I you know they they threw them all out. That was sort of his downfall. But then this is this is the best one he did after that. I stopped dealing with them. I found I found cheaper people up here because that was like a two hour drive. 
he, he, he sent me a letter about he had Beatles tapes. And I'm like, what do you mean you have Beatles tapes? He had the Beatles live at Shea Stadium and all these concert tapes. And I'm like, oh, dude, you're just playing with fire with this one. You're out of your mind. They're going to sue your ass off. One night I'm up real late, you know, got in late, hung over or drunk, whatever, watching something half o'clock in the morning. He had an ad on 1.30 in the morning. Two weeks later, he was out of business. So how did you move from the horror tapes that you had at your store to the porno tapes? I, I know porno is where the money is when you tried to open a store as you said earlier you weren't allowed to have the porno stuff i i know that's kind of what you became known for was you need a porn movie this is the guy to go to well i started doing the flea markets and you get away with it as long as you were low-key you didn't put them like face up on the table if they were gross boxes and what i used to do is because it usually had you know some kind of nasty stuff on the cover i had a shrink wrap machine so i'd shrink wrap you know the gross ones and slap you know stickers over it so nobody can really complain plus you know it was a fire it was a fireman's flea market so if i i gave him a couple parties or whatever the hell they do up there so everything was cool as long as i kept it low-key then i got into this uh indoor flea market which i opened you know i started small with like a small booth and i had like a tiny back room but you know it was working and then uh i got bigger and bigger then it was almost like a full-size video store you know just no renting just you know buy so it was all good till landlords got stupid and that was the end of that what made you move into the porn area the money but I mean, you you just had people coming to you and going, "Hey, I really want this." Oh, and you're you know like, well, we've got John Carpenter movies. Yeah, I was but- I was one of the the few guys that had it, and it was low keyed. And I used to I had women buying the stuff off me, you know, because I used to have like a, a three for twenty five special, and they just get me on the side and go, Here, "Here's twenty five dollars. Just slip me three good ones in a bag, and that would be it." I had I had an eye for what would move for some reason because I you know I watched all those stag films and stuff and I I knew all the names I knew like you know Sika and uh, Veronica Hart and Marilyn Chambers and all those people were going to sell as long as I kept up on what was going on I mean I didn't sit home and watch it because people have this like weird vision of me like sitting in a barco lounger with the case of paper towels on one side a 55 gallon drum a baby oil on the other and uh, a big street screen TV with a splash guard and a bug scraper no it's not me. I just sort of got, like I said, I got sort of got a knack for what I think will sell, and it's been working. That's all. Well, then I guess the question that we have to ask is, since we know the mob was big into the adult industry, they controlled a lot of the VHSs, they controlled a lot of the theatrical. Did you ever run across any of those guys? Oh, yes. All the time. Low end, low end and high end. One of the guys I used to deal with, he was operating out of a bail bond office in Jersey City. And, you know, you're always looking for connections. Once you get into this, it's, it's hard to like, you got to keep looking for connections to get different stuff or better stuff or replace stuff that really went good. So he had an ad, you know, before we had the Internet, we had the one ad press. I don't know if you had that out where you are for buy and sell. And then, you know, it was an ad for, for used videos. And I'm like, okay, track this thing down. And I'm like, where is this guy? I'm in front of this bail bond office. This is the address. Where is him? So I had to walk to a pay phone, call him. He's in the basement. He had to let me in. You know, he had a bunch of stuff there, and upstairs was the bail bond office. And you ever see that movie, Midnight Run, with Robert De Niro? De Niro based his character on the guy who owned the bail bond office, this almost blind in one eye and couldn't see out of the other eye guy named Lou. Yeah, there was guys in and out of there all the time. Weird, you know, strange, you know, you know, there were, there were, there were skip tracers. There were bounty hunters. What can I tell you? One time I was down in the basement going through tapes and these two guys threw a guy down the stairs, landed right in front of me. So yeah, that was, that was one. His guy, they were 
you know, you know those nasty German VHS tapes that they had floating around all the time? His guy was bootleg and nose, like the next town over. So Mike, you had to like, okay, meet me here, but it was like Mike time because after after he lost the bail bond off, it's like I three self storage sheds, a garage here, and stuff in my van. So you had to meet him all kinds of weird places. He tells me, you know, meet him at this um oh where his buddy's knocking off the German tapes or something. So we're up there hanging out and uh, all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and two guys with suits come in and start screaming at this guy named Charlie. And I'm like, well, I think I better leave. And they're like, no, we don't think you're going to leave at all. You're going to sit here and watch what happens. And I'm like, oh, this is just wonderful. But they just basically, you know, verbally ass whipped him and told him he ain't doing this stuff anymore. There's going to be dire repercussions. And that was it. Did you ever have a bad run in with one of these guys where they were threatening you for selling porn tape? Oh, no, no. They, you know, it's quite the opposite. You know, a guy like me that was spending you know, at one point, maybe a thousand, two thousand dollars a week on this stuff. They loved me. Cash was king. That's how I got in theaters. You know, he's all hooked up with that stuff. I sort of knew that going in, but, you know, this is when I'm a customer because I know that, you know, they were watching because, you know, he, you know, biggest bootlegger in New York, biggest bootleg bust in New York City. Let's talk about the bootlegging. Yeah. Now, we've discussed it a little bit on Grindhouse Purgatory, but we might have different listenership here. New York City liquidators was, I think they were, when they were busted, they were the largest bootlegger of feature films in America, something along those lines. A guy approached me at a warehouse. He said he had a list of these movies. And they were all like current, just come out movies. And you know, those things were like 60 bucks wholesale back then. And I'm looking at this list and I'm like, how much are these? And he goes, oh, nine bucks a piece. And I'm like, well, hell, I can make money with this. So I call up that guy at primetime video. And he, oh, yeah, I'll take them all. So I tell him to get me 10 of each. Well, he shows up with this stuff and they're in Amory wraparound cases. And I'm like, I can't sell this crap. So we going back and forth, you know, threats, blah, 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 blah. okay, next time go get him yourself. But inadvertently, he let it slip where we got him from, which was uh, one uh, 127th. Wait, I'm trying to think of the address. I forget it. It's not there anymore, so it doesn't matter. But it was on the 20, 27th and 7th Avenue. That was New York City liquidators down there. And the guy was running. It was a guy named Norman. So I'm like, all right, keep that in the back of my mental Rolodex. One day, I got in some kind of weird deal where I was stuck with a bunch of flashlight batteries. So I, I'm driving. Oh, here. Let me stop in and introduce myself. So I stopped in and asked for Norman, who was this like guy that was like, God, I say four foot nothing almost. I'll be generous. Five feet. You know, shock of white hair behind the counter said, you know, this, this is like you know, almost a mob thing. Hey, Tony sent me because actually the guy who I was dealing with was a guy named Tony. Told him what I did, told him what I needed, and then we started talking about the batteries, and I think I pretty much let him take advantage of me, but that showed him I was serious about when I was dealing deal. You know, I was dealing with him, you know, for some of the stuff, and he got used tapes, too, and he didn't know, to him, horror was junk. So I would get some great big box stuff for like, you know, a dollar, two dollars back then. I would be over there every every week or every weekend or something because, you know, you couldn't park on the street there unless you were commercial, which I wasn't. So I'd go over like on a Sunday where you can park there all day and he was open until three o'clock so I could go browse. But, you know, I get that and I get my porn and then he had new releases, quote unquote, behind the counter under glass. He had that uh, Roy Frumke's thing, Document of the Dead, and I was really interested in seeing it. Like, yeah, you know, get sold to me for like fifteen bucks. So I get this thing home, and I'm like, this thing really looks good, and I know it isn't legit. So that's when you know it dawned on me what he was doing with this stuff. But like I said, I wasn't interested in that because I was just interested, in, you know, old horror movies and you know used regular movies that I could put in the front for you know the casual browser, which they actually bought the damn things. I knew people were warning me too to go, you know, he's being watched by the FBI and they're taking down license plate numbers because, you know, these guys wanted my business and they wanted to get me away from him. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything, so I'm not going to worry about this. Shit. 
all right, you know, I, I knew something was going on because one day, I'm, oh, you know what? This is what, this is the downfall of everything. All right. Everything was good because they were using name brand blank tapes. Well, a bunch of these cheap tapes came in from China called Spartan. And all of a sudden they started using them. And all of a sudden he started getting the stuff back by the pallet load because none of these things were any good. Because I went in there one time and he goes, Oh, you can go in the back and take anything you want for a buck. And I said, Well, you said they don't work. You know? So he goes, Well, you can take them for a buck. Use them for blanks. And I'm like, All right. So I, I found what I do is I found some, some boxes that had tapes that I had to have no boxes. So I switched them, but you know, it backfired, but then something happened. All of a sudden, there was like this this tension going on. Then all of a sudden, it stopped. And then one day, I'm working one of my many off-the-books jobs at that point, and somebody calls me up, and they go, Pete, you got a TV there? And I go, yeah. They go, turn it on. So it's ABC Eyewitness News in front of New York City liquidators, and they're marching everybody out in handcuffs. And I'm like, wow, they finally got them. Then, like, the next day, all over the news, you know, front page of the Daily News, Morgenthal standing there, oh, all this stuff, you know, biggest bootleg tape bust on the East Coast, I would say America. Because they were, they were supplying everybody. It, it was a huge thing. Was one of his employees ratted him out or something? That's like that? the theory. That was the theory. Because there was somebody who was... He would pick up the phone and eavesdrop phone calls. And I think he, he nailed this guy making stuff go bye-bye out the back door. But this guy was like... They were all making a ton of money. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, some of these guys were making... I forget what Norman was pocketing. Because I'll get to that in a minute. Some of these guys were making like 800 to 1,000 a week back in the 80s. This guy, you know, he was a cokehead too. He wound up, started running his mouth outside in front of the place one time before anybody showed up to open up that how he could make, you know, $10,000 about six times turning guys in, this and that and the other thing. Well, I'm just putting two and two together. Norm caught him, you know, back making a bad deal. Norm fired him and two weeks later, Norm gets busted. You know, to be a genius to do the math. But they also said that they had taken $307,000 in loose bills so much that it was a fire hazard out of his house. When we got tight, he told me in confidence, well, I can say that now because he's passed away, that it was twice that amount. So, you know, where the rest of the damn money went, and it's like, that's why he got out so quick. Because he was only, uh I had heard about it, and then, you know, who, nobody knew what was going on. Then I was up the other end of the block doing something, picking, I used, to, I used to do, like, electronics and things, socks, whatever. And somebody said, yeah, he's open up. So I drive down, and I'm like, I, I feel bad about the whole thing, because the guy always treated me right. And, you know, I, I walked in, I said, man, I'm, I'm glad you're okay. Anything you need, anything anything I can do? And he goes, no, no, you're a good friend. You're sticking by me. At least you came by. A lot of people didn't. He goes, do me a favor. Go outside and flag me down at garbage truck. So I'm like, man, okay, what the hell? What do I know? Well, I go up, tell the driver, the guy in liquidators wants to see him. The guy walks in. Some money changes hands. Next thing I know, I'm, they're wheeling out all the stuff the feds didn't grab. It almost sounds like like it was kind of the wild, wild west in the VHS market at the time. I, I'm not talking legit stuff, going to Toys R Us and going to Walmarts and, you know, 20th Century Fox and all that. It almost feels like you could have a really cool mob-style, taxi-driver-style movie set in the VHS bootleg underworld. Be out of there by 8 o'clock. You'd get ticketed or towed. So I'd be waiting there, and I'd see this ratty Toyota station wagon pull up with a box that said SCK blanks in it. And next thing I know, they'd open the store and be offloading the stuff, and the ink would be still wet on the boxes. But like I said, they started getting sloppy with stuff. So what changed then? Why did you eventually leave that market? I know you left that market before DVD was really a huge thing. You sort of left The landlord where I was making the money decided to play game and, and lease it to some corporation. Basically wanted you know, rip the place down and we'd be out for like three to six months and then come back and start all over again at three times the rent. 
And we were like protesting like hell, but it didn't do any good. And then all of a sudden, nobody, nobody was way before DVD though, too. For whatever reason, I've been in that area for like 15 years and I think I basically, you know, oversold my market. I mean, I, I wasn't picking up anything new because I knew the handwriting was on the wall. And the other stuff was just sitting on the shelf, and I'd go up to my outdoor market. I used to get, you know, three, three, ten bucks a piece, three twenty-five, and I couldn't even get two for five toward the end. So I'm like, it's time to pull the plug. And then uh, what I did was, though, um, Cinema Wasteland bought all my cult and horror and karate and all, all that other stuff. Basically, they bought a thousand tapes, and you know, I, I said, what can you live with? And he told me like, uh, I think it was four bucks a piece. And I said, fine. He goes, I can't pay you right away. And I said, your words as good as gold. I'll ship them up to you. I got to get them out of here so that's 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 why i got some of the money back but you know it, it was a kick in the ass because I, I had done it so long and we i had so much fun doing it you know i got a great clientele you know and through children and all the other stuff you know everybody was networking you know it, it was just dead and then i was like dead in the water then norman wanted me to come in and work for him and i'm like well you know gee you got busted for counterfeit rolexes you got busted for this bhz stuff and uh you know three strike law if it happens again you know you're done and i i said you know i'll come in on one condition i ain't i ain't gonna go to jail or do time and he goes you're gonna have to keep me honest then and i'm like well that'll be like a full part-time job on the side too uh, it was rough because i had to do a whole change of living type thing where i sleep you know playing borderline homeless for a while but stayed over there for five years until you know went through 9 11 uh the blackout all the other stuff by that point dvd is a thing did you just not want to get into the dvd aspect or it was a different market like what 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 made you not really well, here, here's deal the in DVD was, the was, same I was, way? I went to work VHS. for him. I, I, I got to the point there was nowhere for me to go in Jersey anymore as far as flea marketing or renting space because everything was so damn cost prohibitive. You know, he made me an offer. It wasn't a great offer, but VHS was still hot, you know, especially the adult stuff. So I went in, you know, I was getting a certain amount of day, and then uh, I told him I don't want to pay for my stuff because, you know, you've heard of Kim's video, right? They were they were one of my customers I brought in. You know, they, they knew me from Chiller, and I said, I want some stuff from there, and I don't want to pay for it. He goes, as long as it doesn't cost me money, I don't care. So basically, I was getting what I, what he was paying me, and then, uh, you know, collecting my DVDs on the side. You know, it, the whole thing was, it was, it was Frank Hennenlotter, and he was a customer down there because he used to root through boxes and stuff. And the guy, you know, Eric Marche, the guy that owns Wild East or partners in Wild East or whatever he does up there. And the guy used to uh, do luminous uh, film and video works. They used to come in and we used to, you know, BS all the time. And Frank was adamant. I'm not switching to this DVD stuff, this and that. And the other thing, then one day he comes in and he goes, peace. And I'm like, what? He goes, I just got the Wolfman on DVD, and I'm like, you traitorous bastard. And then that led to me getting collecting DVDs, and then led to me, you know, basically, I did, I did, you know, that stuff for something weird video with the VHS, and then, uh, I went over to, um, Pop, what's now Pop Cinema, Alternative Cinema, and then did some stuff for him, then started my own line over there. Uh, you know, whatever. I was always hustling the stuff on the side, you know, and then, Different things happen. That's another thing, too, is basically I got ripped off. So the whole thing is I completely respect VHS. VHS and me made a whole lot of money, never lost a dime doing anything with VHS. And if my stuff had only been on VHS, it would have never got ripped off and be on every touring site in the world where I don't get any money, which I, you know, think sucks. But I, you know, we've spoken about this torrent crap before. You know, some people are for it. Some people are against it. But the bottom line is I it took 12 years worth of my work and put it up there for everybody to see for nothing. And I get nothing for it. So there's going to be a, uh, another clip coming up on my uh, Grindhouse Purgatory page shortly about how I'm not doing anything anymore. I'm tired of working for nothing, tired of getting screwed, and I'm tired of, you know, so-called 
whatever. They claim to be fans, but they're not stealing my stuff. I had a good run. I got no regrets, but you know, there's a lot of other stuff I could do, but I can't. So now the stuff's either going to get flipped on eBay or rot in my garage and you know, no more stuff. So that's, they brought this on, on the whole thing. I can't in all honesty, expect the company to release my stuff and lose money on it, nor do I want to lose money myself. So it's case sera, sera. But like I said, with VHS, you could only lower the price so far you can only do so much, and you couldn't stream it. So, you know, the, the digital age is wonderful if you want to get robbed. I know you got screwed by Chiller pretty hard. Do you want to talk about why? Because you you did that unconventional documentary for Chiller, yeah. and you used to work for them, and I know there's a lot of hard feelings on both sides. So do you want to talk well, about there that? Well, there ain't, there ain't supposed to be any more, but, you know, here's the thing. Somebody, when Mike Vrainy passed away, I reached out, and I thought all was well. Now, Mike Vrainy's been gone for, I believe, unfortunately, uh, as we speak, January 2nd, I think, is the anniversary of his passing. I had reached out because it was a mutual friend, nothing more, nothing less. But anyway, I thought everything was patched up. But, you know, like I said, it's been six years. I've never been invited back. History with that company for anything I've done for it has been erased. If you buy an original BD. And now they're coming on 30 years, and somebody was saying, well, you're going back for that? And I said, nobody's invited me. And I said, to be honest with you, because of uh, travel restrictions on me and health concerns, unless I got a nice paycheck coming, I ain't doing anything. That comes down to that. And it's like, you know, I'm not being bitter about it. It's just like what what happened should have never happened. Unfortunately, the guy who orchestrated it made out like a fat rat. It wasn't a promoter. It was some scumbag that was involved in the whole thing anyway. For legal reasons, I'm not going to say his name. But uh, this is a guy who collects Nazi memorabilia if you get drift, you know, and doesn't like anybody. But anyway, whatever happened, that was set up by him. The guy who actually did, you know, the, the dirty deed unfortunately passed away. But at least he apologized toward the end of it. But like I said, it is what it is. I was there for a lot of years. I, I think, you know, I tried to do what I could do. I'm not sometimes the easiest person to get along with, and I was going through some personal problems during unconventional. It, it was a screw-up, but, you know, still, it, it shouldn't alter the fact that a lot of people have passed away in the, uh, I, I hadn't been there since 2003, and a lot of people I know sadly have passed away since then. There's a few people I'd really like to see, but I have to get down there to see them, and it's just uh, sad that I don't think it's going to happen. I already made the effort. I'm the one who always makes the phone calls and stuff, and as of 2020, I said, no, enough. I'm tired of being the nice guy. I'm tired of being the guy who always reaches out. Nothing ever happens. So that's it. I'm dealing with people now that are cool, like yourself. We've been wheeling, dealing with this stuff for, you know, a couple of years, few years now, going back to, you know, the old grindhouse thing on Nightwatch and stuff. And, you know, other people that I've met through the business that, you know, actually want to do stuff and don't have egos and stuff. Sad part about this business is, you know, you suck if you succeed. That's, that's the way it, it sort of plays out. People get very bitter and very jealous because it isn't them. Well, my message is some people aren't cut out to do stuff. It's that simple. Hey, I never asked for this. My whole gimmick was based on a joke on Mike Ferrini 30 friggin' years ago. Unfortunately, the joke was on me. People sort of dug it. People still dig it. But doesn't mean I don't have my detractors. Doesn't mean I haven't been told by the owner of a certain DVD company that I'm a miserable old man and people really don't like me anyway and I should get out of it. But guess what? I'm not out of it. You know, I'll be out of it when that first uh, shovel full of dirt hits my coffin. That's the way I look at it. Do you want to tell people what happened at Chiller? 
Because I, I know the story, but the audience might not. A bunch of phony phone calls. I just left. It just got to the point where after I did unconventional, people claimed I was playing star, which I wasn't. I got paid flat fee for being there. I hooked up, you know, the promoter with with a site fee and everything like that. Certain people didn't like the way it turned out. There was a lot of me in the finished product, and I'm really sorry that if I happen to be the most interesting thing on the film. I'm sorry, but that's the way it turned out. So there was a lot of animosity toward that. And I was looking to get out way before this happened. But I kept being told how valuable I was to the promotion, this and that, and the other thing. You know, like I said, there was a you know a bunch of stuff that went down after that film, and people thought I was playing star, and again, I wasn't. And I quit. I basically left the show. I came back to see one show, and this is a really weird thing. They had the people from Assault on Precinct 13 in there, and they were supposed to do a panel, but none of the staff took them to do the panel. And somebody thought I was still on the staff and grabbed me, and they said, well, these guys are standing here looking, you know, whatever. And I'm like, all right, I'll take them in. So I took them in and hooked it up. I started the Q&A, and that was it. And then I walked out, and somebody goes, well, what, you know, what did you do that for? And I, go, I said, well, you know, where, where's your guys? And he says, well, what do you care? You're not here anymore. So that was that was it. I left. There was a misdirected email on the Internet. I didn't like the way a lot of, you know, a lot of things are going down with the long lines and the fans paying X amount of dollars to get in and wind up standing in line and the hotel gouging. It was just a, just a, you know, a bunch of stuff that should have been handled better than it was. And I really thought that the hotel was ripping everybody off. And, you know, with the autographs, you know, started off like at $10 and they were escalating up into the thirties at that point. And, you know, it just, it was just a whole pile up. But, you know, my thing is I can't keep my mouth shut. And I said a few things maybe I shouldn't have said on the internet. And then I went to a fan. Gloria show that was a two-day show that was in the old Schiller Hotel ran into some friends and the weird part was I was down there to say goodbye I was done with the business at that point they hung over and I got jumped in the hallway by you know two guys supposedly the third guy waiting outside but I can't confirm or deny that I wind up getting smacked in the face my glasses broken get a broken nose and then I filed charges on them they filed charges on me we went to court and uh, the only thing that like pleaded my case was a picture of my bloody face that started off a chain of events where i was a scumbag for a while and then you know how many years later is this i do remember i remember the incident where and, and this is a funnier incident because just how you generally look with a hat you wear with your facial hair you look a lot like yeah. Stephen Bissett, the comic book artist and publisher and writer. It was at one of those conventions where you mistaken for Bissett, and and, and I'm going to say you yeah. you do really yeah. do look like him. I, I I tagged both of you once on Facebook and put photos of each of you up. You guys really look like you could be alternate universe versions of one another. Yeah, he was at um, I think that was the show. He was doing a panel with Ingrid Pitt and Vivian Schilling was there. I don't know if you know her. She she did she wrote a book and she was in uh, it was a good movie, but unfortunately Mystery Science Theater. Got got a hold of it. I can't remember the damn movie, name of the movie. She was a redhead. I was basically uh, escorting her around because, you know, it was a whole new ball game with these, you know, scream queens slash starless, whatever they were. And you didn't want anybody to like, you know, walk up and drool on them. So I was pretty much escorting her around and somebody walked up and wanted her to sign something. And I'm standing there and the guy turns around and he goes, would you sign my book? And I'm like, sure. I mean, what do I know? Didn't even look at it, wrote my name on it. And he goes, you're not Steve Bissett. And I said, I never said I was. He goes, you just ruined my book. It, but it, it is kind of funny how you two really do look alike. Oh, Steve's, Steve's a good guy. You know, we, we met at the shows and he was, uh, 
He's up in Brattleboro, I think. He, he, he's uh, in Vermont, I think. Vermont, yeah. And he used to come down to the East Coast video show. And, you know, I'd see him down there. And he goes, yeah, come down and buy some junk off Bissette here. is a great food so, guy. Yeah. I got no oh, complaints yeah, yeah. with Stephen Bissette. Yeah, which, so, you know, everything starts. I think I did I did something on it's It's on the YouTube channel. Like I said, everything starts out benign. And then it's like, I don't really think I have an ego. I don't know if you think I have an ego. I don't really think I have an ego. Because if I did, I'd be pushing myself a lot harder than I do. In the beginning, it was just, a, you know, it was one guy who had an idea and he had a crooked partner and they got rid of him and it was just him and a bunch of fans trying to, you know, do something cool with the whole thing. And then, you know, like I said, it got big, it got corporate, it got sloppy. And then I was head of security for a lot of years. And, you know, you live in New York, New Jersey, everything's a friggin' liability. So I was like, like I said, I wanted to get out a few times, but, you know, I had some, you know, I bodyguarded off Vira for a weekend. How cool was that? You bodyguarded you know? Sid Haig. Well, I'm not a chiller. Well, I, I just, I just mean that in was general, it. you, you were Sid Haig's bodyguard yeah, for yeah. a while. For Rock and Shock. Got to meet and get, be friends with Dave Friedman, uh, Ted Michaels, um, you know, then Gary Kent from Wasteland. I was friends with Michelle Bauer for a lot of years. You know, you know, just with the celebs, you, you get in with them for a while, but then like everything, you lose touch because you know they're not in your, you know, your your uh, universe, so to speak. We're, we're like, you know, Gary is because Gary's down to earth and retired and actually working more now than he's probably ever done. Same with Bud Cardos, you know, Bill Greffy from, uh, you know, Death Cars of Tar 2 and, uh, Joys of Death. Oh, he called me up around Christmas to wish me a Merry Christmas. There's a guy like in his mid nineties and he still wants to do some stuff. So I, you know, I, I met some cool people, made some cool friends through the whole thing. Sadly, a lot of them aren't around anymore. Well then, not to get morbid on anything, but what, what do you think your legacy is going to be? Cause you've got the reputation, you've got all these stories, and then, you know, of course you got, you know, your 42nd Street Pete. So the grindhouse is sort of your thing you got the grindhouse purgatory show that i do with you you've got the grindhouse purgatory magazine what's your legacy going to be is it going to be those guys that remember hey he sold me a vhs tape you know in 1983 super super cheap this is the guy that would talk exclusively about how the pussycat theater leaked and guys were jerking off in seats yeah, that, that's a double-edged sword because I still, you know, probably if you went went into a theater, you'd hear about stupid stuff I did in bars. But then, you know, when you go the whole wheeling and dealing stuff, there was like tons of people that I dealt with sold stuff. There would be a porn or other stuff. So it was always like, you know, I should have, I had a business card printed up one time before you buy anything, call me because that's how deep I was into the stuff. You know, that was back then. Creatively, you know, I never thought 42nd Street Heat was going to work. It was a joke on Mike Rainey. Who the hell knew? But then, you know... I don't think anybody, including Mike, no one ever, ever thought this stuff would be worth anything. I mean, I sort of did with, you know, the monster movies stuff because they were always there, you know, the Universal stuff. But as far as the rest of this stuff, nobody ever kept track of it. There was no, they can say Bill Landis is a historian. No, he's not. He, he made up a bunch of stuff, you know, because there's no records kept. I mean, anything I do, I try to be, you know, real about it. And if, you know, if I experienced it firsthand, I, I mention it, but I've turned down work because people say, well, why don't you try, you know, can you give me a liner notes on this? And I say, I didn't see it. Well, they said, well, just wing. And I says, no, because you know, that's, that's friggin' lying. I don't want to do that. Like I said, you know, I talk about certain movies and I'll talk, I just did something about, um, did it, uh, this morning, Hot Sir and the Scavengers, because I remember, you know, seeing that in the drunken haze and like it was a cell or something like that. So, you know, then I got the D and I had to watch it last night to stimulate some brain cells. But my whole thing is whatever you want to remember me as, remember me as. But if you remember me as somebody who turned you on to some cool stuff or, you know, hipped you some, some cool stuff to read or, you know, made you think a different way about something, you know, that's that's cool for me. Other than that, you know, I don't I don't have no fan club. I don't even have a website, you know. 
they is prompted like, you know, the, the YouTube channel. Those are friends of mine who said, you really ought to do this. And I said, well, technically I'm as inept as a chimp. So if you want to produce it, I can just sit here, turn the camera on and run my mouth. So I guess people are liking it because it hasn't been kicked off the air yet. Do you have, do you have a weird fondness or like very rose colored glasses about that, that old bootlegging time? Like w- when you can see Assault on Teen in pristine yeah. Blu-ray widescreen, hi-fi sound, the way it was meant to be seen, probably looking better than it even looked theatrically your old mono VHS but it was such a unique experience to be watching that in your own home oh, yeah because nobody ever did it before and that was like one thing I even I even said on that thing I just did for YouTube as a kid I always envisioned that there's gonna be a way to do this I mean you know we had like the castle and the Ken films like you know the universal stuff that was like cut down to like 10 minutes and you know the AIP stuff that was cut down to 10 minutes and that was really hot stuff for us but I always had this 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 thing, I think there's got to be a way we're going to be able to watch a movie on our own TV because a lot of the movies, you know, growing up, you only saw them on a TV. You know, you never saw them on a big screen. Yeah, I, I, I have a nostalgic, you know, bent on it because it was like one of the first things that ever happened. And just the fact that it's still around because they said, well, things are only got a shelf life of 10 years and they deteriorate. Well, I, I guess not because people are still watching them. I had a lot of fun doing it, you know, dealt with a lot of crazy people, saw a lot of crazy stuff go down, and it was like, you know, it, you were alive back. Like now, you know, gee, I need to download something, or I got to like order it on Amazon or that. Fun to be that. You know, my idea is fun, is digging through piles of this crap to find the one you really want, you know? I can't disagree with you on that. I love going through old VHS bins and stuff, but at the same time, I can't say that I would rather watch the old VHS version of something than the beautiful Blu-ray. I know my reputation might say that, and I, I have a huge fondness for VHS and the, the liberation of it, the, the fact that I, I think it was estimated that over half of everything that's been re- ever released on VHS does not have a legal digital component. Yeah. There's so much out there. But at the same time, yeah, if I'm going to go watch a James Cameron movie, I'm going to watch the widescreen pristine version rather than pop my old VHS in. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. But they go through the same thing. I, I got some 16 millimeter films. There's nothing cleaner than a film. But, you know, like I, I said, uh, I just finished my second book and I said, you know, it says the splatter film, the Italian gore films and stuff were sort of like the last gasp of originality on 42nd Street before it just had its death throes. But like I tell people, I said, you know, You'll, you'll talk, say something to me that I never mentioned this and I never mentioned that scene. That's because they weren't, they weren't there when we actually saw the movie. They were taken out. You know, it's cool. They were all put back in on DVD, but when we saw Make Them Die Slowly, you know, the, uh, the famous, you know, off the weenie scene was like chopped down to like maybe a millisecond. You just saw the machete go down and you got a quick glimpse and bang, that was it. So they edited all that stuff down. Some of it, like, cut and run, they edited a ton of stuff out. The, the one thing that always makes me go back to my VHSs is, especially on an older movie, the music. Probably 50% of the time, if it's an older movie, they can't relicense all of the song. Well, at least my VHS has the correct goddamn soundtrack. Yeah, I know. It's, it gets ridiculous how petty people are getting over this stuff. But then, then again... I don't know, you know, if you're not in this business, you sort of have like this rosy colored, you know, glow of it, show business in general, but it's really a shitty, slimy business. It really is. Petty people get and how people get ripped off and things. It's like, um, 
you'll you'll do something. That's why, like, you know, I, I've dealt with some of the porn people and stuff, and, you know, usually they're very guarded because they're so used to being taken advantage of, you know, being told one thing, promised one payday, and it's a whole different ballgame. So it, it's weird, but it's just, it just it's like Sid Haig said to me, you know, you got to have thin, thick skin to stay in this thing or else you're not cut out for it. I mean, it's true. People, people just, you know, like I said before, it, it's one of the only uh, businesses I know where people crap on you when you succeed. Even with what I do with the magazine and stuff like that, I mean, you can't rip me off with that. You can't like stream it, you know, unless you want to sit there and read it to somebody. <laughs> well, I just think somebody should buy the rights to your life and, you know, the 42nd Street stuff, the bootlegging, the video store, all of that stuff. Make a, a 42nd Street era, you know, you could see a, you could see James Glickenhaus doing your story right, couldn't you? Or at least 80s James Glickenhaus? Yeah, I, somebody said that and I'm like, well, who's going to play me, you know? That's, that's the whole thing. It's, it's, uh, it's weird because, you know, like, okay, I wrote the, I wrote, you know, the whole bag of crazy and, you know, it's still selling un- unbelievably. I just got a royalty check. It, it, there's whole different facets of my life that like, you know, I, I, I look at other people's life and I go, wow, I had really a friggin' bizarre time here because, you know, how many people had to deal with all this weird stuff and then just, you know, can't say you walk away unscathed, but you know, I'm still here. Which is why I think not just because you're my friend, but I think that would make an interesting movie. Somebody really should option this. Well, you know, it, it, it's strange. Like you had that whole HBO thing with the deuce and like, you know, who's the, who's the consultant on there? A guy's an investment banker who never said, yeah, on the I, re- I remember I showed you the pilot of that and you just went the hell off when we were on the phone. Well, you know, the, the killer part is, you know, if you're going to do something like this, you're going to spend that kind of money. Show it for what it was. Don't tell me that a hooker will take a check. Even if you walked into a damn bank, they wouldn't take a check. There were so many people that I know, you know, personally that, that were involved in this whole mess that were never even consulted. I mean, you know, some people think Sean Costello is a dick, but he was there. You know, he he was a little tweaked about the whole thing. You know, they, they got people who, who have no, you know, never were even close to the business or never set foot on that block being executive producers and executive consultants and stuff like that. The only name I know that was involved, and I think Annie Sprinkle did something in uh, Veronica Vera. But, you know, other than that, it's like, you know, these these slumps that claim to know it all, they weren't even born back. I'm not saying I know it all, but, you know, I got some good stories that would work, you know? Well, it's the same thing. We, we did a Grindhouse Purgatory where we had Gary Kent on and about how Tarantino literally based Brad Pitt's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Gary Kent, and he couldn't even, he couldn't even summon up his own willpower to invite Gary to the goddamn premiere. Because Tarantino is all just, me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's the whole adage, that, that's why I say, that's why, that's how this business become, become a whole ball of suck. Cause you got all these egomaniacs and Quentin Tarantino never set foot in the grindhouse, no matter what anybody tells you, no matter what pile of BS they spew, it never happened. Look at the time he was born, look at where he, he was lived. Too young. No, all the stuff, all the stuff that he pontificates on that he saw, it was gone. It was, it was gone by then. He's an idiot. You know, I, I get in this whole wound up thing that these people just kiss this idiot's feet when everything he's done it wasn't an original thought in his head. It's just stuff he clipped from all these movies he saw. Hey, I ran a video store. I get it. I had a lot of downtime. I watched a lot of movies too, but I, I didn't run out and like, you know, grab Har- Harvey, uh, Keitel and tell him that I'm, I, I'm the one who thought of this Reservoir Dogs thing. Not that I ripped it off from City on Fire. Well, we're not going to just sit and bash Tarantino. I just think it was, I just think it was crappy of him to base the, the movie on Gary Kent and then be, and then not even have the balls to invite Gary Kent to the damn premiere. That, that pissed me off. 
I'll tell you what kind of guy Gary is. I don't know if I, we had said that when we were talking the thing because we had a thing going on that we we were we were in touch with uh, Tarantino's publicist because we were we had like a, from the magazine you know the page in Facebook we had like an outpouring of like this is you know BS. So when Burt Reynolds died because he was supposed to play George Spann, we said you know at least give Gary the George Spann part. It's a small little part. You know what Gary said? No, give it to Bud Cardos because Bud actually looks like George would have looked back then. So he's being a gentleman about it, and he's always been a gentleman. Not to harp on the whole thing. He, he says how much he, he loves these guys and admires their work and stuff, but other than using Sid Haig in two cameos, he never used any of these guys. So the reason I wanted you to be on tonight is just to talk a little bit about that era, because I think I'm I'm not going to back off of this. I think it would make a great movie. VHS Underground in the early 80s will get set against 42nd Street. It, maybe not killing people, but I get a real exterminator vibe in my head off of that. Yeah, I, I don't think there was, a, you know what it was? There was a bunch of, you know, I know it was all mob. I mean, because, you know, you just had to see how different things were. And like the, one of the, one of the things that killed the bootleggers was they all started ratting each other out. It, it, it would, it would be interesting because I, I saw a lot of different stuff. And it's just like, you know, even if you, you know, the whole thing you could do it with porn because the whole thing with porn was it was such an easy mark because it was a gray area. You really, you know, you really couldn't report it to anybody. That was the whole thing. Well, yeah, I remember when, when the mob started bootlegging behind the green door the the general response was we're the mob what are you going to do report us to the cops on that note where can people contact you if they would wish to do so uh email me directly at grindhousepurgatory at gmail.com um the youtube channel is running on youtube uh, 42nd street pete's grindhouse purgatory you can buy the magazine or any of the books direct for me if you just email me at that uh, grindhouse purgatory gmail.com and a special shout out to the mummy and the monkey who helped me do the youtube channel they have their own little thing the hairy scary hangout and they have a youtube channel you should check out if you like cool old horror host type things and you can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com or go to 1201beyond.com. Remember the Adam and Eve code. Remember the Nord site, 1201beyond.com backslash Drome VPN. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. <laughs>
nasty creatures, flesh-eating ghouls that must be destroyed. incarnations of absolute evil. They possess men, women, and children. And drive them to acts of unspeakable horror. Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.